And now I'm just picturing in my head that I need to go down to the piano and do a Tom Waits version of Cut Your Hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to smoke for like 30 years before you do that. Yeah, well. right. <laughs> Get your cookie <laughs> you monster work cut out for you. <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and guys who can find everything in the world to complain about get together to talk (laughs) about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to give some background on the artists leading up to the album, talk a bit about the recording, do some deep dives on tracks. We are going to make fun of this band. Just as a warning to anybody out there, (laughs) we love music. We love nothing more than listening to music, dissecting music, and we have the greatest respect for anybody who is willing to put themselves out there, but there is definitely stuff to make fun of, and we are going to find that and make fun of it mercilessly. Because you are looking at the link right now, you know that today we are talking about the 1994 release from the band Pavement, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. Now, before we do our introductions and start getting into the background of this artist, we are going to give you a little bit of a taste of what we have been listening to this week. I'm going to start off with the first song on the album. It is a song called Silence Kid. Excellent. Now that we have our baseline for the conversation, I'm going to throw it around the room for introductions by way of a tweet length review. And I am going first to the person that I am the most interested to hear their opinion, Adam. Hey, an album so nice they named it twice. Everybody, this is Adam. And my quick tweet is this album took me back to high school. 
mainly because it sounds like it was written by high schoolers, performed by high schoolers, and possibly recorded in a high school AV lab. <laughs> oh, okay. Not a surprise, but Adam coming in hot. All right, let's throw it over to Rob. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned high school because I have a little bit of a counterpoint to that. So this is Rob here. My tweet length review of Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain was... This week reminded me that mid-twenties angst is its own special brand of disquiet, more mature than the teenage variety and more cynical, but less desperate than the corresponding midlife crisis. Crooked rain hits the nail on the head for that restless feeling in your objectively cool twenties long after you're supposed to be an adult, but before any real responsibilities have kicked in. Excellent. It's pretty good. All right. And this is Tom. I will be taking us down Pavement Road today. Uh, uh, Pavement (laughs) Road. Yeah. That's rich. And my tweet length review is a genre that is sometimes purposefully unapproachable, an album where the lead singer doesn't have a great understanding of his range, songs where the lyrics were just made up on the fly in the studio, and a band that even their original drummer stated he didn't understand why they were popular. Did we just find Adam's new favorite album? <laughs> Let's find out. All right. Let's hop quickly into our general impressions. How was your week, everybody? Yeah. So, Rob, you mentioned the midlife crisis. And I think that this album spoke to that yearning to go back to the 90s for me. So I know I came in hot. And this week, another co-host on the show, a guy named Alan, who's not on today's episode, but he has often talked about something he calls the reverse slow burn, which is not a sex move, but it's that you start listening to an album and it's great and you're digging it. And as you continue through the week, listening more and learning more about the band, you like it less. So this week was a mix of those emotions. And again, my overall thesis is the midlife crisis for me because this album screams 90s. The best parts of the 90s that I loved and some of the terrible parts of the 90s that I hated. So a pretty interesting week for me. So I'll go next. I really enjoyed the week. I was familiar with the record from my 20s when I think it really hit me square in the forehead, which was not the decade it came out in, I should point out. So I got to this one and this band late. And I think that when it got announced last week, I was expecting it to be a little bit of a harder listen. But I was pleasantly surprised at how melodic all the songs were. Of course, I remembered a couple of the songs and knew I would really like those. But I re-fell in love with Stephen Malkmus's slacker vocals and slacker lyrics and i suppose i'm biased because i know we're all talking about these different phases of life but what it reminds me of is my mid-20s because that's when i discovered the band but it's also the age the band members were and i think the general time of life they were actually writing about we hinted at it earlier but i have never heard of pavement when this was announced i've never heard of the band to which most of the folks on the call were like, how did you grow up in the 90s and never hear of Pavement? Well, I didn't. Yeah, I take issue with that right away. I think that's wrongheaded because even though they are a quintessentially 90s band, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, and I agree they have some many 90s touchstones to their sound, they weren't popular in the 90s, certainly not on the East Coast. They were an indie band. So it's reasonable that I've never heard of them. Absolutely. And they, they happen to be from the greater Bay Area. So I definitely did not hear about them until I got to California. So it's funny. I actually was not familiar with this album at all. I knew Cut Your Hair, and that was it. But I am intimately familiar with the album after this, Wowie Zowie 
which I bought on a whim at a Borders Books when I was like 22 years old or something like that. Just happened to have a little extra money in my pocket, and I went CD shopping, and I picked it up. I kind of liked the cover, and I really liked that album. I actually listened to that album to this day quite frequently. I think it's a fantastic album. It is much more of a genre exploration than this album is. This album surprised me a little bit in how sort of straightforward it was in terms of its songs and its influences. I was expecting a little bit more of a broader spectrum of influences because of Wowie Zowie, which, by the way, I in researching this week, everybody kept talking about the album Bright in the Corners, which came out after Wowie Zowie, and they were describing it as like this great comeback album. And the guys in paper were like, what are you talking about? Wowie Zowie's great. And Wowie Zowie is one of those very much like Weezer's Pinkerton that has had a lot of revisionist history of, oh, no, it was actually great. But at the time, it was seen as a departure and somewhat of a flop. But this album, I liked it a whole hell of a lot, I have to say. I know the issues with Steve Malcolmus's voice. I love his voice. He's got a couple of different styles of singing. He has his kind of talk singing, which is that slacker singing that you're talking about, Rob. He has his attempt to push and be melodic, which is often unsuccessful, but never not miss, charming. Right? It's right, always right. charming. <laughs> charming is a great word for his vocal delivery yeah. on some of these songs. Perhaps the best song on this record, which we're going to talk about, I don't think he hits the note in the chorus one time. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, my favorite version of him on this album is his kind of scream shout. I think he really nails that. For somebody who seems that... 90% of the time, he's giving absolutely no effort to his singing. He really can actually hit those kind of intense, high, shouty notes. And I also was impressed by the song structures because, in general, I think Pavement at their best has non traditional song structures that are not just first chorus, first chorus, bridge, chorus. They kind of had this like herky jerky construction to their songs, which I think fits their sound very well and i found it to keep me interested in some of the songs that maybe weren't fully baked seemingly when they came into the studio so i was again i was just very happy this week i didn't have the same nostalgia thing rob that you have because i never got into this album but i yeah. found myself wishing i had got into this album earlier now tom i have to ask you when you bought the CD at Borders Books and Music was Pavement actually playing there at the time. <laughs> Sounds like those were some of the gigs they were getting. No, not at that time. This no, I'm like, joking. You know, 2022. Right. <laughs> so they were broken up at that point. We talk a lot on this podcast about, is it new? Did it break new ground? I can't necessarily say that Pavement broke new ground in terms of being the first people to sound like this. I, you know, like a band like Dinosaur Jr. or something like that was putting out albums way before then. Never got as big as Pavement did. But Marty, who's not on the call, and he was supposed to be on the call but got sick and sent a text today. And he's just like, you know, the one thing I have to say is that I think that Pavement changed the course of modern independent music. And I do think that that is kind of an undeniable fact that their approach to putting out albums, their approach to making music, their approach to being in a band did really set a template for other bands, for future indie bands. They're definitely in the lineage of the band we talked about a few weeks back, the Minutemen, or Minutemen, 
which is to say they they represent that next generation of indie. They probably started their band 10 years after Minutemen. But that early set, we talked a little bit about this topic on that episode, which was those bands were some of the first to break away from the idea that you needed a major label backing you to have a following or to make records. You could instead do them on the cheap and you could drive around and book your own tours and you could sleep on the floor and you could build a following that way and make your art. Pavement's definitely in that lineage, but they did come a little later. But I want to say something else, which is, and I think this will come up a few more times. Adam, I think you are going to have a harder time with this in part because I know and I suspect Tom knows as well. We've been listening to the descendants of Pavement for a long time. I hear so much of what was became wildly more popular in the 2000s. I'm talking about the Shins. I'm talking about Grizzly Bear. I'm talking about, I don't know, the Decemberists. I just like hear the echoes of anything you might deign to call indie from the 2000s or even from the late 90s on. And so a lot of that has already entered my ears. Well, and Adam, you made a comment on our text thread. I think it was probably very quickly after listening to this that they were like Weezer Jr. But I think Weezer was Pavement Jr. It was off yeah. of them, yeah. Right, Weezer right. basically took Pavement and went the major label route and polished they everything did a cleaner, out. yeah. Yeah, more polished version. Yeah, I could hear that, definitely. And I like the unpolished version, by the way. I like the raw, we're just making these songs, we're not belaboring every single little thing. This doesn't sound like a product. And this really does not sound like a product, and I appreciated that a whole lot. That I agree with. Yeah, they they sound free. They don't seem like they <laughs> yeah. care if you like them or not. <laughs> yeah. But I think in both cases, the, the through line is the tuneful songwriting and the kind of fuzzy garage rock approach. And I did have to check the dates. I'm sure you're going to give them to us later, Tom. But this did come out before Weezer's first album. Yes. In addition to the fact that it is Pavement's second album, right? Yes. It is Pavement's second proper album. They had some EPs. And their history is oddly unremarkable in the in individual events that happened. And yet, as I am learning about their history and reading through this story and trying to put together a narrative, the whole time I'm just sort of like... How the fuck did you guys get famous? Like, it sounds like <laughs> things just started happening. They didn't try. And right, right, right. It was almost by accident. I don't know how they got f- as famous as they did. But famous is so relative. I think definitely retrospective history on a band like Pavement. By the time that they reunited and did that comeback tour in the 2010s, early 2010s, their legacy had grown quite a bit. And I think also... Again, Tom, I'm sure you're going to get into some of this, but they paired up with an indie label that then became practically a major label over the lifetime of their band, which is Matador. And so as as that second generation of indie, I think they just rode a very successful wave of some of those small record labels becoming the dominant hip force in music. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And we are definitely going to dive into the history of pavement. But first, we are going to hit our by the numbers segment. I got a few numbers for you here, people. The first number is 100,000. That is the amount of money that Matador, an independent record label, insisted that Pavement spend on a music video for this album to make it, quote-unquote, MTV quality. (laughs) And then 15,000 is the amount of money, after lots of negotiations, that they eventually agreed to spend on the music video for Cut Your Hair. And they have 
always said that that's still a stupid amount of money and did not need to in any way be that expensive. Jeez. Did they get to pocket the 85000 no. that wasn't spent? Because that's over. I mean, with an independent band, I'm guessing, you know, they're they're making a couple hundred bucks a man per gig. And then somebody comes in and says, we want to give you 100000 for a music video. That's got to be. Now, they're not giving it to you, though. That's your debt back to the label. You're borrowing it. From ah, yes. right, right. Yeah, they're trying to take a hundred grand of your album sales in payback for that, which I'm sure you're then using their director or whatever. You know, they're negotiating the rates and you know i'm sure charging you an inflated rate for that not to cast aspersions on matador they seem like a cool record label overall but that is the kind of standard play so 1500 that's the amount of money that pavement got from matador as an advance to release slanted and enchanted the album they had released right before this one that was their first official full-length debut it had already generated a ton of buzz. They had already been releasing it for almost a year on their own before Matador stepped into a distribution deal. But even then, Matador was giving them fifteen hundred dollars. Fifteen hundred, and what was that? Ninety two or something? Yeah, we're talking no money. So this was nineteen ninety. Yeah, that's still that, that, nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. My God! And there's four or five guys in the. That's... At the time, they were a trio, but still not a lot of okay, money. Five hundred okay. bucks each, basically. Yeah. There was just way less money in this world, in a pre-Nevermind world. You know, the 90s kind of changed all that, right? Yeah. That's CD money. Cheaper to manufacture than tapes, and you can charge more money for them? Hell yeah. So, 14. That is the age difference between original drummer Gary Young and Bob Nastanovich, who is the youngest member of Pavement, who is also just like within a year of the rest of the members of the band, basically. And the only reason that Bob Nastanovich had a job in Pavement at all was because of Gary Young. We're going to get to that later in the overall story. But seven is the number of labels that Pavement had signed with over the years, all of them independent, Matador being the biggest of the labels. They were signed through a whole bunch of very small labels, and they very specifically always said creative control over everything, artistic control, production, release schedules, everything. We want to have all the control in the world. In fact, Matador would get annoyed with them because they would literally get like no notice that new material was coming out. They would just be like, oh, hey, we got a new album. It's like, what the fuck what? are you talking about? They're like, yeah, it's ready to go. We got a new album for you. They're like, you know, there's like a whole apparatus behind this, right? How does that work when you sign? Because we covered somebody recently and it's like they had signed a bunch of contracts and then some big record company came in and was like, no, this is the contract. Like, do, does the larger record company buy out the prior record companies yes. or, or are they just very specific with when the timing of the contract ends? So with a lot of the contracts, if you're locked into like a six album deal or something like that and a bigger album a bigger label comes in and says that they want to buy your contract they're buying out some form of expected sales of your albums with that other and matador was just for distribution for a lot of this a lot of the time they were basically just distributing the album certainly for slanted and enchanted for crooked rain they were a little bit more of we're going to help produce the album and another thing is that they were also talking about how Matador was expecting that they were going to spend like a hundred grand oh, on right. studio time. Okay. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're not spending a hundred grand on studio time. That's fucking ridiculous. You can make a great album for $10,000 was their basic premise. And then we got two numbers left here. At least two is the number of feuds that Pavement had with other prominent bands at the time. 
including the lead singer of the British band The Fall, who basically said that they were a fall ripoff and had nothing original. And the guys at Pavement were sort of like, fuck you, whatever. (laughs) It seems to be their kind of standard response to a lot. (laughs) UK fans, write in and let let us know if that's true. And then the other one is with Smashy Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. No. Because of lyrics from this album, we will touch on them later. (laughs) And that went on for a couple of decades. They were still talking shit back and forth on social media once it got into the social media age. But to be fair, (laughs) it sounds like it is remarkably easy to get into a feud with Billy Corgan. Yeah. (laughs) I love the Smashing Pumpkins. I had a gigantic melancholy, uh, sorry, I had a gigantic Siamese Dream poster on my wall. I still think Siamese Dream, Pisces Iscariot, and Melancholy and Infinite Sadness are fantastic albums and even i can say billy corgan seems like a gigantic prick and i would not want to hang out with him in any way shape or form it's funny because of late i think he's been very purposely trying to change his public persona to be a nice guy again but yeah i think he's known as a a real uh, crusty character if you have to go on a charm offensive to convince people that you're not an <laughs> asshole you're an asshole in your 50s yeah. right and then number one, which was kind of interesting to me, was the spot that this album reached on the alternative radio charts in 1994. This was the number one alternative radio album at one point in Damn. 1994. This is when Soundgarden were out. This is, I mean, there was a lot of really big albums. When alternative radio was a thing, I remember kind of being a big deal, like when it was, you, you could find something other than pop and classic rock on the radio. We'll talk a little bit more about how college radio helped their rise as well, but they were definitely seen as a true alternative to mainstream rock and roll music. So before we jump into the background of this band leading up to it, we just have two things to ask you people. We love the fact that you listen to our podcast. We really appreciate that you spend time with us every week. It means a lot to us. The one thing that would really help us out a lot is if you could tell a friend about this podcast, go ahead and rate, review us, give us any kind of shine you want, or tell us that we're a bunch of ignorant assholes. That is also a valid criticism of us at times. We know that we don't always know every single thing about every single band, but we put a lot of effort in to make this podcast to try to get you more informed. And Any way that you can help spread the word is much appreciated. And there's one other thing, dear listeners, that we would love to get from you. We have merch. We officially have a t-shirt. If you are like the three of us on this call, your ardent hope is that whatever person you are trying to attract is more into brains than they are into looks. And what better way to tell the world that you are an intelligent person who thinks deeply about music than to represent our podcast on a t-shirt. You can find yes. in the link to this episode, links to the store. It's like an Amazon drop shipping kind of thing. We get a couple of bucks for every t-shirt that you buy. And I guarantee you, every person who looks at you will think, that guy probably has some very deeply held and slightly annoying opinions on music. <laughs> <laughs> the shirts are really soft, too. I bought three so far, so they're uh, they're quite lovely. Adam swaddles himself in them before sleep. I do. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the band Pavement. Story really starts in Stockton, California, with Steve Malcolmus and Scott Canberg. I think you meant scenic 
Stockton. Oh, yes. Lovely scenic Stockton, which is not like the third most dangerous city in California or anything like that these days. <laughs> Sorry. That was, yeah, that joke was a little over Adam and probably our listeners' heads, but Stockton's not yeah, a desirable think, place. No. Okay, thank no, you. I was not. wondering. <laughs> you know what? A lot of MMA fighters come out of Stockton, if that tells you what oh, Stockton's all right, like these so. days. <laughs> But back when they were growing up in Stockton, it was kind of more just like a farming community type of thing. They are friends from about 10 years old. They played soccer together. Actually, it might not be accurate to say that they were friends from 10 years old because to hear Scott say it, uh, Steve was the neighborhood brat and Scott was the neighborhood bully. And so Steve would make fun of Scott and Scott would beat up Steve. But they played soccer together. and They kind of knew each other. And they eventually form a band called Bag O Bones and begin playing <laughs> what is described by them, not even by other people, by them as a New Order REM Echo and the Bunny Man ripoff. That's how they <laughs> describe their own band. Which, hey, listen. At least they were honest. Yeah, right. They know what they're doing. When you're just starting out, you got to rip some people off. Yep. That's the way it works. You got to emulate the start. That's right. So they're friends. They're playing in Stockton. Steve Malcolmus has the fantastic idea, I should get the fuck out of Stockton, California, and decides that he's going to go to the University of Virginia and study history, which he probably could have picked a better major. Not a lot of jobs at the <laughs> history store, but he made it work. <laughs> While he's at the University of Virginia, he becomes a DJ at the local radio station for the college, which, Rob, Adam, looking back... We all went to the University of Delaware. We could have easily had radio shows if we wanted to. Why didn't we do that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every, the world was as content starved as it is now. <laughs> Especially that 3 a.m. slot, that coveted 3 a.m. college radio slot. Listen, there were lots of people up and smoking weed at that time that were really looking for new music. All right? <laughs> I would ask you this, Tom. When, if ever, did we listen to the college radio station in college? W-V-U-D. I listen to Curtis B's Mixed Vegetables sometimes. That was a good show. The Demonical Cyclonical, man. True. <laughs> uh, yes. Our, oh, our friend's show. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's not... your a... friend's show. <laughs> yes. Some people listen to it, I am sure. But either way, he becomes a DJ at the college radio station, and there he meets several people. Most importantly, Bob Nastanovich. But he also meets Yola Tango's James McNew which I found to be quite interesting. And he also meets David Berman, who would later front the Silver Jews. He is a total indie rock scene guy, one of those people who was later touted as being hugely influential, but nobody heard of him at the time of his life. This radio station sounds like it was quite the incubator for a lot of high-level musical thinkers. I'm not necessarily going to say musical talent, but high-level musical <laughs> thinkers. <laughs> it's a big difference. It may overlap, but definitely uh, yeah, not the same. So he forms a friendship with Bob Nastanovich at the time. Bob is known as a DJ that plays really obscure music. Nothing popular at all is being played by Bob Nastanovich. It's all like, I found this random seven inch of some band that you've never heard of from Providence, and I'm just going to play their song on my radio station. Steven is playing a little bit more 
progressive rock type of stuff. But they do form a friendship, and Stephen then is going back to Stockton over the summers and hanging out with Scott, Scott Canberg, and bringing back this influence that he has of this weird music that Bob Nastanovich is introducing him to. So he has always had a progressive rock, 70s, Jimi Hendrix style of musical background, but he's now adding to it some of the more experimental music that he's hearing from Bob Nastanovich. And Scott Canberg is also working at a used record store. So he's getting exposed to a whole bunch of new and weird music at the time. And it really sounds like this is a very formative period in their lives where they're breaking out from this more mainstream classic rock and roll style that I think every kid kind of gets that education at some point. You, you hear Jimi Hendrix, you hear The Doors, you hear Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd and stuff like that. And a lot of people never get past that. And it sounds like these guys sort of were supercharged into a more out there way of thinking just by virtue of the people that they were coming into contact with. So and explicitly going out and trying to find the weird stuff, the unheard stuff. Right? Well, it sounds like not necessarily they were trying to do that. It's just the environments that they were in. Like he had a friend just falling in their lap. You know, Bob yeah. Stanovich is just like, here's a whole bunch of weird shit. And so it's like, oh, this is really crazy. Scott Cannonberg is, is working at a record store and a bunch of weird shit's coming in. And you work at a record store, you're playing music constantly. You're not just going to have the same five records on repeat all the time you're just finding right. random shit and playing it but it does sound like it gave them kind of a crash course in alternative music education at the time so he's going back to stockton in the summers and they're trying to get some projects off the grounds they're making music together eventually as they describe they're getting drunk one night and just writing random lyrics and making some random songs and they make a recording of a couple of songs do a couple of singles and they decide hey maybe we can get a project off the ground they find a local stockton studio that they can work in which also happens to be run by the drummer gary young who's much older he's a punk drummer from the stockton scene so he was a well-regarded guy in the stockton scene and they go to him and say, hey, like, we want to record some songs. These eventually, with Gary Young on drums, because it was just two guitar players at the time, with Gary Young on drums, they eventually record a bunch of songs that they packaged into an EP titled Slay Tracks 1933 to 1969. Already going with just unapproachable names. They're <laughs> like, right, trying right. to throw you off the set right away. 1933? What the? Yeah. So... They record this in a couple of days, and I have a couple of different versions of this story, but I'm going to go with the one that Scott Canberg says, which is that when Steve was in Europe for like an extended trip, kind of wandering through Europe, Scott decides to package up this and call the band Pavement and get a seven inch pressed. Now, this story sounds incredible. And by incredible, I mean, maybe not credible, but <laughs> to hear Scott describe it, this gets somehow into the circulation of a bunch of different kind of underground places. Somebody from the band, The Christmas Gift, which is a British band that I've never heard of, that was on tour in the United States. It somehow gets into their hands and... It makes its way over to John Peel. And John Peel, legendary BBC radio guy, likes it, starts playing some of it. Scott says that the first time that Steve Malcolm has heard 
this seven inch was when he was in a record store in Austria and it was being played what? in the record store. And he was like, that's my what? band. How the hell do you have that, my band? That's, that's where it insane. sounds incredible to me. It does not sound credible. Yeah, you're right. That you're actually right. Yeah, that's right. How, How long, long was, was he, he in Europe? Wandering <laughs> that continent. <laughs> exactly. Like, is he just really rich? And I did not realize that. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I spent six months in Europe. I don't think that that's the case. I'm just going with what, scott said in an interview so i don't know if it's true or not well to be fair you don't have to be really rich to wander around europe for six months the other side of it is that you're really poor and actually don't have money to book (laughs) your passage home and you're just like sleeping on people's floors or outside in the park people used to do stuff like that a lot i guess so not really my style i don't even like camping let alone just sleeping (laughs) on park benches (laughs) But it's more success than they ever thought that they were going to have. But there's no money in it. This is still just, there's not many copies. They're just getting widely circulated type of thing. So meanwhile, smash cut, Bob Stanovich has graduated from UVA. I think he graduated. I don't know if he actually graduated. He just left UVA at this point. And he's living in New York, driving buses in Hoboken, as one does. And he calls <laughs> up <do>. Steve. <laughs> sounds like yeah. a musician job right there. Call, that sounds like actually like a good job. That's like a union right. job. You could support a family on that job. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he calls up Steve Malcolmus and he calls up David Berman. And he says, dude, New York is the place to be. You guys got to come here. And they say, yeah, like, let's do it. That sounds great. They all move into an apartment in New York together. They're super poor, living in crappy apartments, going to crappy dive bars, seeing lots of underground shows, and having a great time by all accounts. Now, Pavement at this point is still just Scott Camberg, Steve Malcolmus, and Gary Young plays the drums, but he's not an official member of the band, but he's their drummer. They will come out and do like a couple of tours up the East Coast play like five or six gigs on the East Coast or something like that. Rob, it's very similar to kind of what we did in the chop where we just would get into a van and drive, you know, 18 hours and play four shows along the way or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But so you're saying they're living with Bob Nastanovich, but he's not in the band yet. He's not in the band yet. No, he's not in the band. It is during this time, they've recorded a couple of more EPs. It is during this time, it's basically like around the summer of 1990, 1991, They decide that they want to record a proper full-length album. And so Scott and Steve and Gary go into the studio. They're recording this predominantly at Gary's studio out in Stockton, California. And they record the album Slanted and Enchanted. Now, Slanted and Enchanted is recorded in like 1991. Over, you know, a long time in 1991. Over the course of... 1991 they're also kind of starting to introduce other people to the band that are not necessarily members of the band but they are people that they think could be a good fit for the band so that is where mike eibold who becomes the bass player kind of gets into the mix now he was a big fan of the early pavement eps so these are people who are like steeped in the underground scene. This is a guy who's like, there's a random seven inch that like 5,000 copies of were printed. And I'm a huge fan of that seven inch. And then I meet the guys in that band and I'm super stoked about it. Oh, that's gotta be wild. Like he's already a fan. That's cool. Yeah. So they're hanging out and again, they don't have a bass player on slanted and enchanted. There's no bass. 
Well, there, no, there is bass. It's played by uh, Scott predominantly, though. But not a okay a proper bass player. There's, yeah, there's no proper bass player. But they're hanging out. They're going to a bunch of underground indie shows. And they basically, over the course of 1991, before Slanted and Enchanted is released officially by Matador, distributed by Matador in 1992, they basically make Gary a full-time member of the band. They bring in Mark Eibold and Bomnastanovich. Now, the whole reason that they bring Bomnastanovich into the band is because Gary is an alcoholic and he is very <laughs> unreliable to the point where he will just wander off the stage in the middle of shows ruin shows just absolutely be uh. a madman but also think that he's doing entertaining things there's lots of footage of him like trying to do headstands on stage while the band is trying to play that was him because I, I saw some live clips and I was like, what is that asshole? Like, I thought it was somebody from the crowd that came up and they didn't want to be mean and like beat the crap out of the guy. No, that's the drummer, the bedrock that's- of the band doing that. <laughs> at the time. He would also do shit where like he'd like get it going like they were going to do the big kick in and they just wouldn't do it. And oh then God, get him dick. going for the big kick and oh then he wouldn't do it. And I think he thought it was funny and interesting, but they were not fucking happy Ugh. with it. So they brought Bob Nastanovich in and they said, you are an assistant timekeeper slash multi-instrumentalist. <laughs> wow. <laughs> timekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like, again, this is like summer of 91 that they've recorded this and it is getting a lot of, again, underground distribution. There's no record label behind it with a big distribution deal or anything like that. It's getting a lot of underground distribution, but very much like another band that we discussed on the podcast and was mentioned earlier, REM, they were riding the college radio wave. I wonder if Steve Malcolm's connection to the college radio world had anything to do with that. I mean, this does kind of scream college radio, but it also sort of kind of defined yeah. college radio at the time. So I don't know if it was a chicken or an e- and the egg thing, but... Yeah, that's a good point. I think the connection to radio, I mean, like REM, right? They're... They're the other band I most associate with the concept of college radio, and they came from a college town. Yeah. That, that can't be disconnected entirely, right? Sure. But the other thing that they said is that they were apparently the darling of fanzines. Now, for all of our, you know, Gen Y people... <laughs> zines were a thing back in the day where people would just make their own magazine and use a photocopier and print a whole bunch of them up and staple them and put them in a record store or something like that that would be distributed essentially for free it was a weird time in america but zines were a big thing it was a big thing through the 80s and into the 90s yeah yeah so if you are ever making content and trust us when we say this people when you're making content, you're starved for fucking content. And so you need people to write about <laughs> And you're always having to search for new things to write about. And pavement became one of the things that a lot of the people in the zine community latched onto and wanted to write about. I think also their overall aura and persona fits very well with that zine out of the mainstream kind of culture. The people with zines aren't going to write about the Smashing Pumpkins. That's just ridiculous. Why would you do that? They have an entire apparatus behind them that is already promoting them. A band like Pavement, we've talked about this before. If you feel like you discovered them before other people, they have that sort of like, this is my band type of feeling to them. And you get very 
territorial about it and you want to promote it and you want them to be popular. But not too much. <laughs> yeah. When they get popular, you get super fucking annoyed. Right. <laughs> but it's also because they have this meta, early meta approach, this like self-aware songwriting thing that makes you makes it all there's a remove that they have from the stuff and so they're engaging in the craft of song songs and music but they're also a step removed from it and kind of poking fun at it yeah i would say that that's true all of this seems very wink wink you know like you said a lot of self-awareness and a lot of uh, not necessarily disdain but a lot of feelings of superiority for the things that other people like type of uh, attitude. <laughs> that really explains a quote that I heard in an interview, and I forget who said it, but one of the guys said, you don't have to play to make it music. Hmm. Wait, what? What do you mean? <laughs> it doesn't... Are you just describing a still life photograph at that point? <laughs> it's like, you don't need to play, man. That's just what the mainstream wants you to do. What? I do think this is a legitimate beginning to modern hipster culture the anyone you might have called a hipster in the last 20 years i think it's based on this approximate image of what that means well it's funny steve malcolmus in an interview was basically like well what did we have as suburban kids we weren't black sabbath we weren't working class we weren't new york hipsters i was like oh ah, Hold on a second. Well, <laughs> you moved to New York. You're all living in an apartment, yeah, right? In an underground band, <laughs> zines are fawning over. You're the absolute definition of a New York hipster. I'm sorry. <laughs> and guess where you move next? <laughs> <laughs> so it's 1991. They've recorded Slanted and Enchanted. They're not making any money, but Slanted and Enchanted is a critical darling, I have to say. This album has gotten so much praise and it's not a bad album i like the album i listened to the album basically this week in preparation for it i hadn't really listened to it much before i'd heard it a couple of times but it is lauded as the beginning of a movement it is lauded as a fresh sound i know that we hate this organization but in 1999 pitchfork said that it was the third best album of the 90s that's ridiculous. the 1990s, wow. the entire that's, decade of the 1990s. That is a that's insane. That's a statement. I think I, I would agree. I mean, I think that album is definitely less palatable than the one we listened to this week. I think that's pretty safe to say that it, this one's a lot easier to like. Would you agree, Tom? Oh, yes, absolutely. So maybe that is, in fact, what they are commenting upon. But I'll give them credit for being early. It does sound like the 90s in quotes. So, you know, they're a little bit ahead of the curve there. I get what they're saying. but Certainly. But there is this, oh, it's hard to listen to, therefore it makes it better vibe that I really don't like. I saw, what, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth said that the reason that he bought their first EP, 7-inch, is that the record store clerk described it as pretty good but borderline unlistenable and he said oh that sounds like that's for me that does not sound like that's for me at all i would have to agree with you yeah but some people they want stuff that they put on and everybody else is turned off by and they can explain to you why it's great and why you just don't appreciate good art anyway so slanted and enchanted has been recorded it's now being distributed by matador records Sells 100,000 copies officially. However, apparently, 
Matador said that most of the sales came through catalog sales, which were not necessarily in-store purchases. And therefore, they were not recorded as sales in the way that they actually recorded sales numbers at the time. So Matador estimates that like 85% of their sales were actually through catalog sales. And so we got 100,000 official, but Matador is saying that that is only 15% of the total. I don't know how much that, how true that is. Now, this is going to sound really stupid because I've never ordered, like when, when you're saying through a catalog, we're not talking about the old Columbia house thing where you pay a penny and you get all of your CDs. Was it like, you'd go to the record store and be like, I need pavement. And they're like, I don't have it. Let me check in the paper catalog. Oh, there's the pavement record. I'll order it for you. Sure. <laughs> I don't actually know. I don't, yeah, I don't actually I don't, know. I, yeah, I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. I thought what Tom was talking about was that Matador records published some kind of, you know, if you bought a record from them in the past, you would get in the mail a shiny catalog occasionally. Oh, and then okay. you would order That's, from there okay. and that there were people following these indie record labels so closely they would kind of order anything that Matador told them to. But your, yours is actually more plausible, Adam. Yeah. I like both of those, though. And I don't have a, an appropriate answer, but that is just what I was able to find out about their record sales. So more more than 100,000. More than 100,000. Yes. said more than 100,000. That's... Pretty impressive, it's I think. Quite for... impressive. Now they still don't have any money, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but they have solidified themselves as a band. So they got Scott, Steve, Gary Young on drums, Mark on bass, and Bob as assistant timekeeper slash various roles. <laughs> and Gary's the alcoholic, and he's still playing drums. Gary's the alcoholic. He's still playing drums. Okay. They book themselves a tour of Australia. Japan and Europe. That's a pretty damn big tour. It's ambitious. Yeah, it's very ambitious. They go on tour on the cheap again. They're not, you know, doing the big tour bus thing or anything like that. A lot of sleeping on people's floors and scrounging for money and stuff like that. But over the course of this tour, Gary Young's behavior deteriorates to the point where it is untenable. They get to the end of the tour, they're in a hotel room in Copenhagen, and Gary is like, I basically need to quit the band. Y'all are a bunch of fucking young kids in your 20s. I'm like 40, (laughs) 41 years old. I need to make money. I can't be doing this shit anymore. And they all kind of were like, he made a whole bunch of unreasonable demands. I'm like, as a 41-year-old, that seems pretty fucking reasonable. (laughs) Same here. It's like, this is all coming crashing down now. We're talking about all the midlife crises and stuff. It's like, yes, that's what you do as a 41-year-old guy. I can't do this anymore. Just give me money or let me go. Yeah, so Gary insists that he got fired. Everybody else says that he left that uh, hotel room saying, I quit. I quit this band. Which... Considering that they then released Slanted and uh, sorry, they then released Crooked Rain right after that was a really bad financial decision because he would have been probably set for fucking life after that. But either way, he quits the band. Enter Steve West, who was a mutual friend of Bob and uh, Steve's from their days working as security guards at the Whitney Museum in New York. In New York, (laughs) to hear Steve Malcolmus tell it, and this is a band, mind you who has just got back from a tour of Australia, Japan, and Europe. He said, 
he had a place to rehearse and a drum kit. So it seemed like a natural fit for him to be in the band. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who's got the gear and the space? You're in the band. But that one guy could have driven the bus across Europe. Yeah, but not to Japan and Australia. Those are like in three distinct corners of the globe. (laughs) Yeah, they probably blew all of the money they made on that tour just on plane tickets. Just to get there. So Steve Young comes in, says a pretty good fit, joins the band in 1993, and they get started on their second full-length album, which is 1994's Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. I don't believe that I let you guys know. This was released February 14th of 1994, the quintessential Valentine's Day album. Don't you think? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Get this one for your girlfriend or significant other, boyfriend, whomever. They will know that you love them and that you put a lot of effort into this gift. So it's recorded over two different locations part of it is the louder than you think studios which is gary Young's studio in stockton but it sounds like not a whole lot was recorded there it was mostly recorded at a place called random falls in new york about which i could find no information and so that might have just been like their apartment or something like that i, I was gonna really say it's know. a guy's garage <laughs> <laughs> we've been in a couple of those places tom yeah yeah, yeah right totally totally <laughs> so we now have crooked rain crooked rain i think it's about time that we start talking a little bit about the specifics of these songs find out what the buzz is all about people we're gonna jump back into the first track on the album this one is called silence kid Before we start the comments on this, I just want to know, am I going crazy or did anybody else get the melody that he stole and the song that he stole the melody from, at least a part of it? Am I the only one who picked up who thought that? I didn't get it. I had a reference to Jeremy, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. I thought he stole the melody from Buddy Holly's Every Day. <laughs> Love like yours will truly come my way. I hear it. But it's a, I think it's a there's snippet. some, yeah, it's, I don't know. I will pop it in here just where I think that he's may have, may have cribbed a little bit of the melody. You listeners can tell me I'm going crazy, but I couldn't get it out of my head the entire time. It's getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. However, let's get past that. Let's talk <laughs> about the actual song. What'd you guys think of this song? I love it. I think it's great. Good table setting. 
my initial run through kind of that fall apart thing that they do in the first five seconds, obviously it's supposed to, you know, they're in the studio, they're getting ready to do the take and then it comes in. I thought it was a little corny, but I, I dug it once the actual song came in. But yeah, I dig this tune. I was going to comment on the opening as well, because I think normally that stuff really doesn't age well, but I think they, they set it up really nicely and then land to pay off the song. So I, I can accept you just, putting your noise, you know, up front on the record. Like normally I don't, I don't care for that, but I think in this case it works. Well, it depends on what you're going into. If you're going into something super clean and highly produced, then your random fucking studio noise doesn't make any sense. One could argue that they have blurred the line between random studio noise and songs <laughs> over the course of their career. Yes. And so it, it does kind of blend together very well, but I agree. I really do like this song and I, it's definitely letting you know what you're going to get on the album in a positive way. I think that, again, at their best, they have this kind of non-traditional, like, herky-jerky construction. And I like how the song kind of falls apart at the end and then has that sort of, get, hand me the drumstick, snare, kick type of thing. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. I like that part, too. I like how the vocals are synced with the drums. It makes me just, it reminds me of being in a rehearsal room and kind of writing with the drummer in the room as opposed to coming up with parts on the fly just there's a nice tie-in but i i did it did bump me that when he says snare kick they're reversed of what the drums (laughs) are playing (laughs) i didn't notice that that's that's hilarious it's funny after your weezer comment adam i was thinking about the career of weezer and the career of pavement and how pavement has always just been about two years ahead of weezer and this song particularly i think presages a whole lot of stuff from pinkerton where rivers cuomo talks about being in a band and being kind of famous and popular but having no real connections with other people and he talks about masturbating a whole lot and how hollow being famous is and this song ends with him basically saying i'm on stage and i'm being adored and it's fantastic smash cut to five hours later and i'm alone in my hotel room lonely and jerking off (laughs) and that is i think what most of pinkerton ended up being about which i found to be a again just a very nice you know you could see the influence reverberating through popular music which was cool yeah i thought it was interesting too i usually complain about like long intros and stuff but the chord pattern that they run through for the first minute and five seconds was interesting enough that i didn't get tired of it which is really crazy too because it's a three minute song and the lyrics don't come in till 105 and they're cramming a lot in right there's that that drum breakdown thing that you said so yeah it's a pretty ambitious tune i think for your first track on the album and i dug it yeah overall they do tend to make their songs again not boring sometimes they're boring we'll get to some of those songs later on yeah but it's it's a good indication of the good parts of pavement i think and we'll talk about other songs that do this as well but it's it's ultimately pop music with a clear and interesting structure but delivered with this like layer of fuzz on everything, on the phrasing of the singing, on the guitars, that just makes it feel dirty and garagey and indie. And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, they're the opposite of a try-hard band, certainly. You don't get the sense that there was a whole lot of <laughs> vocal takes left on the cutting room floor that didn't quite make right. it because of squeaker notes or anything like that. But again, I really don't mind it. And I feel like Rob 
if somebody were talking to me about really not liking Steve Malcolm's voice and it just really being annoying because he's not hitting the notes, I would feel like they were crazy. And I was thinking about all week about how you probably felt on the Morrissey episode or on the Smiths episode where I was talking about <laughs> Morrissey because I can absolutely see the parallels. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I find this charming and it doesn't bother me at all. I know what you mean. It's subjective, and it, it but it, it does have something to do with it. it. Just fits. It suits the band he's in, and it suits the songs he writes and the lyrics he writes. So that's why it works. Yep. All right, let's go on to the next song on our focus list, which was the biggest hit off of this album. It was also the first single that was released, and it was the one that, if you're going to be familiar with a song from this album, it's probably this one. This is the song, Cut Your Hair. I would be genuinely surprised if Adam claims he's never heard this song. I had never heard this song, but I get why it's the hit. I mean, when they opened it up, I mean, you know, in retrospect, it seems kind of corny, but man, it fits that 90s kind of playful thing. And this was the one where I thought Weezer. But again, you're telling me that Weezer is coming after these guys. So this song has no business being as catchy as it is (laughs) for this band that is not into super catchy songs. This song is really catchy. And I, the way that they start the song off with the guy just going, stop it. And then the song kicks <laughs> yes, in. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's like kids fighting in the backseat. Yeah. I love that. Right. It's really great. <laughs> it's a very funny song. And I think there was a time, I think this partially hit on MTV just slightly, probably premiered on Beavis and Butthead, you're going to tell me, or some alternate <laughs> MTV. But it's because funny songs or clever songs were often relegated to novelty. So I think I heard it and kind of dismissed it too quickly it's their biggest hit but i think it's an encapsulation of what the band is in the most palatable possible form they get the cleverness they get the trading vocals approach they get the thing where the vocals match with the rhythm there's just a lot of fun stuff in here and uh, we haven't even talked about my favorite part yet but i'll let you guys go well i like how the It's essentially the chorus, and they start the song with that, and then they just kind of go through verses after that, and then they break into that part. It's not a traditional song structure, which is not surprising for this band. They don't have very traditional song structures, but I do think that it's, yeah, you said playful, and it actually has pretty good drums on it, which you need to. The song we're singing about your drummer, like, did you see the drummer's hair? I think it's a, a super fun song. I like how... You can tell what state of mind Steve Malcolmus was in when he was writing these lyrics. It's like, let's go down to the practice room because attention and fame's a career, which I think is like, he's getting a whole lot of pressure to like, make this your life, make this your career. And he's like, oh, attention and fame is going to be my career. Fuck that. I think that's where they maybe got that slacker title. That's a good line. I love when they shout no big hair. That's my favorite part. I was <laughs> about to ask because I immediately thought of 
the Jane says moment. She takes a swing and she can it. You know, they do the big scream there. That's where I was thinking with the no big hair. Except for this song doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But yeah, that, that actually came off pretty well. It is also, we already said Silence Kid was about being in a band, but this is also about being in a band, about going to practice, about hearing about other bands who are maybe getting ready to lap you in terms of success, and do you care or not, and you're already getting old, even though you're only 27 in band world, and... (laughs) Right. The record label's like, maybe you should get a crazy hairstyle. And they're like, fuck you. I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. right. Or I could see the no big hairline being in a wanted ad for a drummer around this time because they would be talking about hair metal, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. good point. Yeah. Nice. Good. You know, they also stay away from the super dissonant guitars on this song. Yes. Which I like the super dissonant guitars. I think they work in their other songs, but it makes it hard to like it for a general audience to glom onto it immediately so smart move on their part (laughs) i want to put two drops in speaking of dissonant guitar one is the lead guitar at 58 seconds normally i think the lead guitar is great i think he has a really great style i don't know if it's one guy consistently if it's malcolmus or cannonberg maybe you can tell me but this one it comes in only for a second doing a little bendy thing at 58 seconds and then it comes right back out and it's dissonant it just sounds like they mistakenly left it. Music seems crazy. Bands start up each and every day. I saw another. Now that said, the guitar solo is awesome. I love. Oh, it. I love. Oh, you like the it? Tone oh, and the notes. It I sounds like he's holding I, on to a proton pack from Ghostbusters <laughs> and just barely keeping it from burning his face off. <laughs> Well, that's interesting because I feel like there are a couple of these songs where it really does feel like they're about to go off the tracks, like because they're not phenomenal musicians, right? And it does feel like at times they're holding on for dear life and are barely holding it together. And if you were to ask me what the solo in this song was going to sound like, I could have mouthed this to you before <laughs> I having heard it. I was like, I bet he's just going to go. And there's like a couple notes in there where it's like a little rough where, you know, but it sounds like an airplane landing. It's it's awesome. I would agree with Rob. I think it's got a lot of energy and you can get by on energy and style. It's Neil Young, you know. It's energy and style and attitude. You can get by on that. I dig it. I think they're tighter than you than you think they are, too. And I think the record kind of proves that. They have the loose, tight aesthetic of bands like the Rolling Stones, where it, it's intended to feel like it's going to fall apart. But I think they're in control. I also know that they got a lot of shit where people were like, they don't really practice or anything like that. Well, they also happen to be living in different areas for a lot of this time. And so they weren't getting together every week, a couple of times a week and playing together. It was much more like, let's get together. We're going to do a tour. Let's get together. We're going to record an album type of thing. And so they got this moniker of like, I don't, they don't practice. And it's like, well, they do kind of what Rob and I have been doing with our last several recording projects, which is like a sprint up to something where you get together and you work on it really intensely for a short period of time. But you could say that we haven't practiced. Sure. We haven't played together in a long time, but then when we get together, we, do it intensely for like a six week period and put something out. I'm going to challenge that thesis in the next song. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the next song. It is right. the song Unfair. <laughs> Yeah. 
I listened to this one and I watched a little bit of their live stuff from early on back when they had Gary, the drummer. And he was, he was a good drummer. Like I, I saw him do some stuff with some really solid drumming, a lot of big fills. And then I heard this song before I knew that he, that Gary had left the band. And I was like, there's no way this is the same guy. This is a pretty weak rhythm section. And I would direct your attention to the six second mark wherein there is a single stroke roll of three hits and the guy manages to screw it up. It's so off. It's like, it's just bad. And to start the song like that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Adam, I'm really glad that you have moved beyond just complaining about pitch. (laughs) And now you're complaining about drum timing as well. Rhythm. It's just sloppy. The guy could have done another take and nailed it. I don't know. I know that's their aesthetic. You can now say that about anything. Any mistake is aesthetic. (laughs) Listen to the cutting room floor of me doing these episodes. It's just aesthetic. But here's the reality of being in the studio with whatever songs, with whatever band, is that sometimes you do another take and you go, you know what? That first one had it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but it had it. So I'm here to defend this song. This song rocks. It's a noisy tour. Uh, the song overall is good. Noisy I'm just tour that through that... California, which I'm sure Adam doesn't appreciate, but he makes reference to all the places in California just about. Yes, I noticed that as well. Yeah. Well, this one is that energy song that I really, really dig. I'd love the energy. And Rob, that's probably what you mean when you say it has it. It has that energy of driving it's a song about going all across California, and it's a driving song. It feels, I mean, the lyrics aren't great, but I like the song a lot, and I really like his shouting voice on the song. I think he nails the vocals on this song. This is one of those ones where oftentimes he writes out of his, out of his range, and he tries to sing it, and he can't quite do it, and, you know, whatever. It still works. It's charming. This one's right in his range, and he nails it. He's really good. He's still squeaking. He's cracking on it, but it works. Yeah. When he's shouting. And I actually, I like that part of it. Because he's not, you know, he's not like a, a Chris Cornell shout scream kind of thing. It's like his voice is, is breaking up, but it works. So this song is really mixed well. And I have to give a lot of credit to the mixing on this song. Because it is that hard-lined walk of noisy but not muddy. You can hear all the different instruments. They're all making a lot of noise. It's all fuzzed out, but nothing's getting lost. And I really do appreciate the care that went into the actual production of this. I know, Adam, earlier you said that it sounded like it was recorded in a garage. I disagree (laughs) with that. I think they were going for a garage aesthetic, but this is clearly a professional endeavor going for a garage aesthetic as opposed to it just sounds like shit that someone was recorded in the garage like i recorded a song over the weekend for our fantasy football league where i was talking shit on all the other people and how much i hate them and <laughs> i listened Good to use it your time in, all right. it was a great use of my time my wife and kids were out for a friday night i had nothing to do it was great it's the best two oh, hours i've spent in the last right. month but right <laughs> i went and listened to it in the car and it just sounded like mud everything just sounded <laughs> <laughs> right, washed right. together and this is clearly Nicely professionally recorded, even if they are going for a lo-fi sound, it doesn't come off as uncaring. So good work on that. Yeah, and I'm reading that they produced it themselves. Does that mean they also engineered and mixed it themselves? They were very adamant about having full creative control over everything. So they produced everything themselves, and they were definitely intimately involved in the mixing process. They had artistic control over the album art and everything like that. They very specifically 
went with smaller record labels because they were able to dictate all of the terms and say, we want to have this be our album. We don't want a guy in there being like, well, you don't have a single. Go home and write another song. They're like, fuck you. These are the singles. This is what we're going to do. Now, they clearly had an idea what they wanted, which is cool. And yeah, I'll just rep the guitar again, just in general. I think the guitar work and the guitar writing and the guitar tones are all really interesting and very purposeful, even when they're being really noisy and fuzzy. I just, I can sense a lot of care went into that. That's in addition to the, there's a lot of, rarely are the two guitars playing the same thing or just strum alum and chords. There's always counter melodies. Even when the guy's being dissonant, I just, I can tell it was very intentional. Yeah. And it led to a cool song. It's not my favorite song on the album, but this song is a cool song and it definitely rocks. And, I don't necessarily think of Pavement as a band that rocks a whole lot, but this song rocks. They can do it. All right, we're going to go on to the next song on our focus list, which is the song Range Life. Also about being in a band. I'm noticing a lot of <laughs> <laughs> lyrical consistency here. That's <laughs> oh, rad. Listen, this is my favorite song. This song, a little country, John. Yeah, dude, I, I love it. It really spoke to me when I was, you know, 23 or whenever it got to me. I've always wondered. I guess Tom's going to tell us about that feud now. But I always wondered if it was playful ribbing of the Smashing Pumpkins and Stone Temple Pilots because they were on tour with them or real shit talking i'm not really sure so to hear steve malcolmus say it it was playful ribbing billy corgan clearly did not see it that way but to give you an idea of why it might have been genuine shit talking apparently later on he would replace other bands with stone double pilots or smashing pumpkins bands like counting crows and the spice girls so I'm really doubting that it came across as like, no, I really respect what you're doing here, just like the Spice Girls. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that was more of a statement of they had gone through a lot of effort. Again, a band that is touted as being a bunch of slackers really did go through a lot of effort to not be part of that big music label machine. And I think they were just kind of talking shit on being on tour with bands that were in that big music label machine and seeing what that was and being like, wow, we really don't want to be that. And we're glad we're not that. Did you read about the story where they were on, I don't know if it was Lollapalooza, but they were in West Virginia and they were getting pelted with mud. 
so much so that they left the stage because I like they like oh they came on after Sinead O'Connor or something, but like they were just absolutely destroyed on the stage and, and they were wondering why they even did that. So that feeds more into the whole anti-establishment. Yeah. Thing. And to hear them tell it, now Billy Corgan denies this, but to hear them tell it, they also were kicked off of the Lollapalooza tour because Billy Corgan said he would not be on Lollapalooza if pavement was on Lollapalooza. Damn. What a character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, if you need to do a full court press image rehab, it's not for a misunderstanding. It's because you're actually kind of a dick and um, you know, <laughs> people have just caught on. Okay. I just want to say why I think the song is great. I think clearly it's a simply constructed song. It has country vibes, as Adam said, but it's just really well executed. It feels very sincere. I particularly like the verses and the verse writing. To me, that just really, he creates images in a really easy, you know, brief way that put those images in my head and made me feel like that was the soundtrack to my life. And again, the guitar is great. I think the jangly lead guitar that's kind of going through the song that feels like it might fall apart at any second is just perfect for this tune. And for this band, if you had this vocal treatment and everything else was pristine and clean, you'd be like, well, that just doesn't fit. Why why are you not singing better? But when you have really jangly, dissonant notes in the guitar, and then you have dissonant notes in the singing, you're like, oh, that's their thing. That's what they're going for. And I agree, Rob, this song is pretty damn fantastic. This is the song that on this album, again, I was only familiar with Cut Your Hair. And this is the song that I was like, I found myself wanting to re-listen to the song. When it was coming up on the playlist, I was happy about it. You know, you get 10, 15 times through a playlist. You're usually pretty bored with every song on there. But I was still having that feeling of discovery listening to it. So great work. There's a fragility in his voice that works really well in the context of this song. Again, because it's kind of a slower you got a country vibe and you know, he's not hitting all the notes all the time, but there's still a melody there that you can define, even though he's not a four forty, Right. And it worked well. Yeah. So I definitely dug this tune. I want to go back to something that you said, Rob, about his lyrical approach. And I wrote at some point in my notes, he's an indie Tom Waits. Yeah. He's very much, a minimalist i'm throwing out a whole bunch of evocative imagery and it gives you an idea of something even though if you were to just read these deadpan they sound like nonsense but in the context of the song they really do evoke a feeling from me and it's hard to do that without just coming across as slam poetry bullshit and i think he does it very well I think that's a really good touchstone for him is tom waits and i agree he paints pictures with his words and it's hard to do correctly, hard to write that line. And then he also kind of uses phrases from the lexicon as jokes. The hand me the gloves, there's crime, and it's never complete. You know, like little lines like that, where he's just like trying to be clever in amidst painting this picture of what's actually going on. I, it's a great great showcase for him as a lyricist and, and as a singer. But back to my original comment, does he hit the range life note even one time? And does no. it even matter? <laughs> Doesn't matter, and no, he doesn't. It doesn't matter, right? And sometimes it's not even close. Sometimes he's getting there, and sometimes he is just not even close. And you're like, ah, okay, that's your thing. I get it. I just think that was a really interesting decision to keep that specifically. 
I, I, it doesn't bother me. I agree. It does not interrupt my enjoyment of the song. So I guess ultimately they made the right decision, but I'm just still trying to put myself in the shoes of the artist going, is that like, we could do it again and take it down a key. Like I, you're putting yourself out there very vulnerably throughout the song and in the context of a vocal take for any song. I just, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just still surprised, even though ultimately I guess it was the right decision. Well, that is also never surviving as a take with an A&R guy in the room or a, a producer from the record <laughs> right. label in the room. They're like, are you fucking kidding me? Get back into the vocal booth. We're going to slow the tape down or something. This is ridiculous. Like, you cannot have that stand. But they knew what they wanted. And I like it more than if he hit it. I really do. I like it more than if he hit it right because it's a long, it's a song that's longing and it's a song that has a feeling of unfulfillment in it, I guess. And that works particularly well. It's almost why you know, I've talked before about how, based on the Steve Earle episode, I have a love of Towns Van Zant, who does not have the best, most precise voice, but it's got a lot of character. And for that type of music, sad-ass country music, it works really well. And this is kind of sad-ass country music. Yeah. And now I'm just picturing in my head that I need to go down to the piano and do a Tom Waits version of Cut Your Hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to smoke for like 30 years before you do that. Yeah, well. right. <laughs> Get your cookie you monster work cut out for you. <laughs> All right. Let's get the last song we're going to talk about played here. This is the song Hit the Plane Down. <laughs> I totally missed this song on the playlist, by the way. So you guys talk about it yourselves. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is terrible. This is embarrassing. I knew before you published the playlist that this would have to be the low light because it clearly is the low light from the record. And I happened to notice on Wikipedia that it is the only song not written by Stephen Malkmus. Yep. And you can tell. It doesn't fit on the album. And now... The bass approach, that sort of like driving bass, it sounds like it could have been a Drive Like Jehu song, but their vocal approach and their instrumentation approach is very different than anything Pavement's bringing to the table. And it's not your lane, guys. You didn't nail it. Now, they have some heavier stuff on Wowie Zowie that I think works particularly well, but it's still not this kind of heavy stuff. It's just bad it sounds just like we've been in these practice rooms where you're just messing around at practice trying to make the other guys laugh like leaning into something that isn't even good but you just keep doing it anyway and vocalizing over it and 
it never rises above that. It feels completely devoid. Before I knew it wasn't Malcolmus, I said, it's devoid of the wit and wisdom that Stephen usually has in his songs. <laughs> yeah, I like, what are they even fucking talking about in this song? It's just, it's just dumb all around. And I think that there are a lot of people out there that think Pavement are a dumb band because of their aesthetic. And I think those people are wrong. But if this was the only Pavement song I'd ever heard, I would wholeheartedly agree with them. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Pavement's a dumb band. They don't try very hard because this song doesn't try very hard. And then that whole going down, it sounds like they're just pumping it through a loudspeaker at the end. Like they went hard on the production choices to try to save this shit of a song, but it does not work. It makes it worse. And just look where it lands in the track listing. Was it Marty who said the second to last is always where you put the worst song? So there you go. It's 11 <laughs> out of 12. <laughs> they knew they knew what was going on when they when they published it. I like that idea. I like what you just said, though, Tom, that they leaned into the production because they knew they had a turd, but they made, tr- tried to make it avant-garde after the fact. Yeah, exactly. You're like, no, 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 no. You can't force avant-garde or it just comes off as Yoko Ono, and I don't need that shit. They could have cut it. A 39-minute album is a perfectly respectable album length. But nope, they had to go for the full 4216 on this album. So that is all of the pavement that we are going to talk about today. Few things left, dear listeners. Thank you for sticking with us through our deep dives on the songs. Now, the most exciting part, and I am actually quite excited about this vote. I want to know. Do you need to listen to this album before you die? I'm going first to Rob, because I know his answer already. (laughs) Hell yeah, dude. (laughs) So this is my punk music. These songs, the way that people talk about those late 70s, early 80s indie bands or punk bands with such reverence and like, this was the first time that I heard someone that sounded like the coolest version of The Voice in My Head. For me, that band is Pavement. And another thing I wrote is that I think these songs are to indie music what Seinfeld was to comedy in the 90s, which is their witty little irreverent windows into normal life that just feel like you and your friends riffing, but it's definitely better than that. (laughs) So in my opinion, I do like the rest of the Pavement catalog. I think they're absolutely a band worth exploring, but I think this is the most accessible entry point and it's really good and it's a good showcase for why they're good. So absolutely. Yes. Excellent. All right, Adam, give it to me. Sure. So the more I listened this week, I did find that I was discovering more and more melody in these songs and I get the aesthetic they were looking for. And while I don't think these guys are bad, I just found them unremarkable the more I learned about them. So I'm going to court controversy with this vote, but I'm going to say that I don't think you need to listen to this album before you die. And I, I welcome the flood of angry emails. This is Adam who is giving this vote. So make sure you mention me in the hate mail. <laughs> the listeners know you're not cool, Adam. Don't worry. <laughs> right, you're right. They already know that. Yeah. All right. Adam, you were given a chance to subvert expectations and you didn't do it. God damn it. (laughs) So this is Tom. Clearly, I'm voting yes. This is surprisingly approachable as an album. And I'm not going to say I'm a pavement fanboy or anything like that, but I do like the band. I like what they represent. I like what they brought to music. It doesn't have to be this super polished type of uh, you know highly produced music and it also doesn't have to be angry fuck you punk music there's a way to have not super polished and also not super angry music 
I liked it a lot. I thought that this album exceeded my expectations, even though I came in with high expectations. You absolutely should listen to it. It's a gem of an album, and I do not regret a single listen through this week. So there you have it, dear listeners. On the list, two out of three correct opinions. (laughs) We have a few things that we're going to do before we wrap things up here. And first, I'm going to throw it over to Rob, who's going to lackadaisically slide his hand in the mailbag or whatever. And I don't know, maybe like read something or some shit. I don't know. Who cares? We have some missives today from quite very slacker of you quite far away. (laughs) So you'll be pleased to know that. And they're both about Jamiroquai. So uh, so get ready. How much didgeridoo are we talking about here? (laughs) A lot of didge. A lot of didge. (laughs) Peter, all the way. Speaking of didgeridoo, Peter, who writes from Adelaide, Australia. Wow. Okay. Writing in. First, your podcast is fantastic. You know what? Let's just cut off the letter there. How about that? Exactly. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Peter. Good he night. says, I've been recommending to everyone, and we spend a lot of time in my studio talking about your episodes and your takes on our favorite albums. Our only issue so far is with your take on The Prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he means he enjoyed that one, but okay. The most controversial You were not album. harsh enough on The Prodigy. I'm guessing that's, that's what my headcanon is of what he means. Right. He goes on to say, I'm a music lover but without musical training so i find your insights based on your professional musical backgrounds informative they add another layer to my understanding and appreciation so thank you peter awesome now to the jamiroquai as a longtime fan of jamiroquai i very much enjoyed your discussion of emergency on planet earth happened a couple weeks ago as with all of your other analyses, I think your complaints are fair. Is he great? Eh, uh, not sure. Is he fun and does he give you music that can be just the right thing when you need something like that? Eh, yes, absolutely. Sure. As you mentioned, music is about a moment in time in history as well as when you encounter it in your own life. It plays. It all plays into the nostalgia. It's very personal. Last night, this is up to date, guys. Last night, I saw Jamiroquai perform at Rock Harvest in Adelaide. Wow. Okay. And JK's festival. Band, he did not buy the ticket as a festival. JK. He, said he, came, <laughs> he says he's a longtime Jamiroquai fan, though. He said he came on after Nile Rodgers. Hard act to follow. Very funky. JK's band was tight, and my God, they were very, very good. So precise, so on point, very much in the palm of JK's hand. I agree basically with what Tom is saying. He says, if you were at a festival and he's on the bill, go see him. Don't, by all means, do not buy a ticket to, to Jamiroquai. <laughs> anyway, love the podcast. You're doing a terrific job. A terrific job. Please keep it up. I'm learning so much and enjoying it. At the end of the concert, JK is now just lighting barrels of crude oil on fire. Just to really... <laughs> How can they sleep when their beds are burning, dude? <laughs> Oh, God. Okay, and we have one more quick Jamiroquai one. Ollie from the UK writes, Hi, folks. Top job on the podcast. That's definitely a UK expression. Top job, boys. It's nice to hear people dig into records and not just in a positive way. In response to your Jamiroquai episode, however, I feel the need to correct you. Uh Uh-oh. In England... We also think they're shit. <laughs> Don't you dare try pinning that on us. All the best. Oh. Ollie, can we be friends? <laughs> that is fantastic. You can find me. We can be friends. It'd be great. <laughs> that's, that's great. We appreciate it. And if you want to tell us anything, you want to tell us your thoughts on Jamiroquai or any other 
anything under the musical sun, anything we've covered. If you want to correct us, you want to add context to any of our opinions or our shows, write us at 1001 album complaints at Gmail. We'd love to read them. Excellent. Thank you, Robin. Thank you to everyone for writing in. Very much appreciated. It's one of the highlights of our week is hearing opinions of people who are fans, haters, whatever. We're here to learn. We always want to try to find out some more context. So thank you for writing in and thank you to everybody for sticking around for the most exciting part of the episode, which I guess is kind of sad if I'm saying that's the most exciting part of the episode. It comes like an hour and 15 in, but here we go. We're going to get our homework assignment for next week. And as you all know, we are in the midst of listener request month for November. It's Thanksgiving here in the States and we are giving back. So what are we going to do? We're going to listen to your listener requests and we have a big one here. This is one of those sacred cow bands that we talk about all oh, the man. time. Your votes came through loud and clear. You wanted to hear us talk about Steely Dan, and we are doing Can't Buy a Thrill. Ooh, nice. You want to hear us talk about Steely Dan more than we talk about on non-Steely Dan <laughs> episodes, because they yeah. still come up kind of Buck- a lot. <laughs> Somehow that was requested. Buckle up. Yes. What was the guy who wrote in and, and called our taste Steely Dan on white bread? It's the most yeah. accurate appraisal of our <laughs> <laughs> musical pants. Oh, God. I love the haters. Uh, I do love the haters. That's I actually awesome. don't even know if that's a hater comment there. Anything that has Steely Dan that's in just it just accurate to me. Yeah. And white bread, I mean, I can't deny it. I burn under harsh light. Like 60 watt bulbs make me burn. So, <laughs> You know what, though? I can already tell this is going to be a good one because for those who might not know, this is Steely Dan's debut and not nearly as perfect yeah. as some of their later output absolutely nice yes. that's going to be a very fun one so for next week listen to can't buy a thrill by steely dan always continue to write in let us know what you think rate us review us thank you very very much for sticking with us all the way to the bitter end of this episode for 1001 album complaints i have been tom i'm adam and i'm rob a boo Nailed it. No need to go back. (laughs) So fragile. So fragile. Print it. Print it. (laughs) 